This is my voice, my weapon of choice. Hello everybody, you are listening to IVS Radio, a podcast series on the migrant women experience. Brought to you by IVS, the international women's space. IVS has been a space for refugee women to come together and self-organize. We discuss, share, and exchange our stories, experiences, challenges, and struggles. We empower each other and empower ourselves to learn about and fight for our rights. Make sure to visit our website, iwspace.de, and subscribe to our podcasts. Hello, everybody. You are listening to Ives Radio, a podcast series on the migrant women experience. Today's show is called Black Lives Matter in the Mediterranean Sea 2. This is our second show, and today we will be speaking with Diana Arce from Black Lives Matter Berlin about the killing of George Floyd in the U.S. and the anti-racist protests in Berlin. On the second part of the show, we'll be listening to Hela Kanakan from the Alarm Phone, who will be telling us more about the situation of migrants at the borders of Europe. This podcast is brought by you by EVS, the International Women's Space. We are a feminist, anti-racist group of migrant women, refugee women, and women without this experience. With EVS Radio, we want to both shed the light on our lived experiences and the general situation of migrant women living in Germany today. My name is Denise Garcia Bergt, and today I'm joined by my two colleagues from EVS, Jennifer Kamau and Lavenda Samuel. Welcome. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Hello. I'm Jennifer. Hello, I'm Lavenda. But before we begin the talk with our guests today, we'll be commenting on the structural racism we see all around us. Jennifer, would you like to start? Yes. I think it is very important that today we will be speaking of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is a movement that originated in the U.S., a country that built its wealth on slave labor and the debts at the borders of Europe. Because, let's not forget, slavery in the Americas was an European enterprise responsible for trafficking human beings to the Americas. So I see a historical link between the killings of African Americans and black migrant bodies trying to reach Europe or floating dead in the Mediterranean Sea. For me, it is like this. The U.S. built its wealth on enslaved labor. They had the abolition more than a hundred years ago. If they could, they would have gotten rid of all black people. But they needed these people for their capitalism, which is a product of slavery. But the U.S. society has to deal with its structural racism that allows for these killings for the mass incarceration of non-white body. And then we have the situation here at the borders of Europe. Here, they try everything to stop us from coming. The killings start at the borders, at the Mediterranean Sea, in joint ventures between Frontex and non-European countries, as it is happening now with uh, Libya. According to reports from organizations such as the Alarm Phone, Borderline Europe, Mediterranean and Sea Watch, who have directly witnessed and documented illegal push and pullbacks to Libya. For those who don't know, Frontex is the European Border and Coast Guard Agency that is supposed to manage 
the European borders in line with the EU Fundamental Rights Charter and the concept of integrated border management. In 2020, the budget of Frontex will be 346 million euro. According to, German, to the German Federal Ministry of Interior, Building and Community, Germany perman permanently sends about 100 federal police officers to support Frontex operations. Germany also sends a variety of operational equipment, including two federal police boats, which are currently operating off the Greek island of Samos. Yes, Jennifer and Dennis. The racist structures are all over, and the fear of ending up in the hands of the state and its police is real. I was reading a report done by Death in Custody. The alliance of various anti-racists, anti-colonial groups, and individuals and there, they say that more and more blacks and people of color are dying in custody of the police and other state institutions in Germany. And according to their research, one of the main causes of the deaths is institutional racism. We know what that means. Anyone who lives or lived in a refugee lager experiences the institutional racism. So, I would say that we can't feel completely safe as black people when living in institutions such as the Lagos, where we are not free to move, to work, or to even become independent individuals. Thanks, Jennifer and Lavender. And now we have the pleasure to have Diane Arce from Black Lives Matter here with us and... Maybe, Diana, you can also introduce yourself because your biography is so extensive. You can choose what you want the audience to know now. And later on our webpage, when we uh, post the podcast, we can put an extensive biography. Thank you. Hi. Um, yes, so I am Diana Arce. I am an Alaskan-born child of immigrants uh, from the United States. And uh, my family is from Dominican Republic. And uh, I have uh, lots of degrees, I guess. <laughs> uh, I have a bachelor's from uh, Hampshire College in Massachusetts. And I have, I'm also an artist, so I have a, a MFA from the UDK in Berlin. And I have been living in Berlin for 16 years and have been an activist for 22 years, I think long time um, and f I focus primarily on uh, uh, anti-racist activism yeah thank you Diana for your for the introduction I'm going to start by saying something very short to introduce the topic about George Floyd George Floyd was killed on the 25th of May this year 2020 in the city of Minneapolis in the state of Minnesota in the United States According to chilling transcripts of the police officers, body camera recordings made public a week ago, it was revealed that George Floyd told officers, I can't breathe more than 20 times. 20 times during the 8 minutes and 46 seconds he was being held by Derek Chauvin, 
The police officer who killed him by pressing his knee to George to Floyd's neck for 2 minutes and 53 seconds. Before he died, Floyd cried for his dead mother and his children. Mama, I love you. Tell my kids I love them. I'm dead, he said. Scientists who study human respiration say that, un that untrained people can hold their breath from between 30 seconds and 2 minutes. Anything more than that results in a process that leads, to, leads eventually to death. Also, according to the transcripts, it is now known that the killer Derek Chauvin said it takes a heck of a lot it takes a heck of a lot of oxygen to talk during Floyd's final moments. This is a lynching by police officers caught on camera. And we cannot forget the record history of Derek Chauvin. Before he knelt on Floyd's neck, Chauvin was the subject of 18 complaints filed against him with the Minneapolis Police Department's internal affairs. Earlier in his career, Chauvin was involved in multiple incidents in which he or other officers used fatal force. In 2006, he was one of the six officers on the scene when Minneapolis police shot and killed 42-year-old Wayne Ryers, a Native American man who allegedly drew a shotgun on officers. Two years later, Chauvin opened fire on Ira Latrell Toes, a then 21-year-old black man, while he was responding to a domestic disturbance call. When Chauvin and another officer arrived, Toes locked himself in a bathroom. Chauvin forced his way in. He shot Toes twice in the abdomen during a struggle, saying later that Toes tried to grab his gun. Toes, who survived the shooting and pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor charge, said he fought back against Chauvin in self-defense. In another incident in 2011, Chauvin was part of a group of officers that shot and wounded Leroy Martinez, a 23-year-old Alaskan Native American, because he was a suspect of a shooting. In that case and others, Chauvin was placed on temporary leave during an investigation and later cleared of wrongdoing.
We are back with the IVS radio and we just listened to the KRS-1 song, Sound of the Police. And now we want to engage Diana. We are so much looking forward to engaging you. And my first question would be, if you could quickly explain or tell us how you organized yourselves as a Black Lives Matter in Berlin and took so many people to the streets here in Berlin to respond to the killing of George Floyd. Well, we didn't actually take people to the streets here in Berlin. Um, as Black Lives Matter Berlin, for us, you know, we do risk assessments to look at what is the risk for the black community here. And as we were preparing to respond, we were starting to organize internally and then also organize with other organizations. And uh, we did a risk assessment and we're looking sort of at the, looking at the intersectional black community here in Germany. And we came to the determination that we couldn't protect uh, black refugees, we couldn't protect uh, black elderly people, we couldn't protect um, black people who were immunocompromised or uh, black people who are differently abled, and um, and we couldn't count on white people who we knew would come out in full force to protect us, the those particular marginalized groups within our community. Um, and so the, the very first, the very first protests were organized by sort of a combination of some black organizations and some, uh, mixed organizations, uh, with POCs and some white people. And, um, and then later on, basically like in the course of this whole thing, there've been a few that have been organized by black folks, um, mostly younger, younger black people, um, who weren't really thinking about COVID and the implications of that would have on the particularly very marginalized parts of our community. And um, and then a lot of white people started organizing under the banner, Black Lives Matter. Many of them were not in contact with us. Many of them were not in contact with any black organization. Some of them would get in contact with us and we would give them very particular information about like what they needed to do in order to protect black people who would go to those things. We would advise them like, if you are not black, do not call yourself, do not call the protest Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, this is not about you. And, um, and so, you know, but we were mostly, you know, we were looking at and we're talking to different groups in the community and sort of seeing what they needed. And, you know, and we spoke to you guys and, you know, with COVID going on at the same time and the situations in the Heim, and we thought it would be better for us to focus our energies on helping that out as opposed to taking to the streets so that white people could perform their allyship. Ah, that is quite interesting, Diana. 
do you think an invigorated anti-racist movement is gaining momentum in Germany? What are your thoughts about this? I think there's the sort of there's two things that are kind of happening. I feel that there is um you know, I've been in Berlin for 16 years and there you know the the black community here it's very it's extremely diverse. We don't even speak the same language. Um there's a lot of different issues that different parts of the community face and I find that you know one of the things that we're striving for is to bring as many black organizers, activists, anyone who is black who wants to say something about this or feels that this is a call to them to bring us together and to um, find ways to better work to, with, with each other, to support each other, to make sure that resources are going to who needs the resources most, to make sure that people who need research are getting the research they need. Um, and so there is, I feel like there is definitely in, you know, there is a, a bigger push now within uh, different people who are organizing for black people, black people who are organizing for black people in Germany are definitely coming more together. And, um, and also with POC, people are also too very much showing up. I think Migrantifa is doing a pretty great job. But then on the flip side, you know, it's this thing of all these white protesters showing up to things and talking about, only talking about George Floyd hmm. and not talking about the violence that happens here in Germany and not talking about, you know, we have a George Floyd now. We have, you know, Mohammed, this, a, a, a black Moroccan man named Mohammed was shot on June 18th in Bremen. He was, I, I can't say for legal reasons, he was murdered by the cops. But essentially, a, a person who's having a, like a, an episode, like, like, a, like a, you know, who's having a, basically having an episode, and the reaction to that is to shoot him, you know, because he's hold, apparently he's holding a kitchen knife, um, is something that isn't being talked about by the white people who are coming out for Black Lives Matter. You know, they're not talking about Orijala. They're not talking about Rita. They're not talking about all these black lives that have been have been lost here, that haven't been taken seriously by the police when they go missing, that um, are dying in custody, that are dying, uh, that, that are dying at the hands of police. Because, um, you know, I feel that a lot of the white activists here, it's a lot easier to point the finger at the bad Americans who are, you know, creating, who are, who've, who've created the racism. Um, and I think Natasha, as I always, I like to say this because this is sort of a paraphrase and an addition to something that Natasha A. Kelly said to me once, um, that one of the things that the Europeans and especially the Germans like to forget is that racism was invented here. They invented it here and the Americans, they might have made it more efficient, but it was invented here and it was rooted here and it's the reason why Europe has all of its wealth. So until that is reckoned with, then they cannot pretend that it's the United States export. Thank you very much, Diana. Do you think it is possible to mobilize around the same number of people to demonstrate in the streets of Berlin in response to the deaths in the Mediterranean Sea? Unfortunately, I don't think that's gonna happen. Um, I would love to have it happen. And, you know, and that was, I did speak at the first, the very first demo, that demonstration that happened and everyone was surprised about how many people showed up. And one of the first things I spent a lot of time addressing the white people who decided to show up. And I said, great that you're here, but if you only show up when there's American bodies that are dead, when there are black American bodies that are dead, then where are you when black people are dying in the Mediterranean? Where are you when black people are being trapped into the, in the Himes? Where are you when black people are being killed here? And that 
it's not good just to show up because there's a video and it's not, it's not, you know, if you're just showing up when there's a video, then you're basically just virtue signaling and you're not really here to fight for black lives. And until, you know, until people recognize that they have to fight at home and that they have to fight for the oppression and the violence that is perpetuated here that they're not doing enough. And particularly with the Mediterranean, I mean, the, the European Union put out a statement that saying Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, you're the ones who made Frontex. You're the ones who are basically stopping the boats, stopping, stopping the dinghies from getting picked up by boats. You are putting hundreds of thousands of black bodies at risk to die every day. So you don't get to say Black Lives Matter. You don't get to choose which Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter isn't about the exceptional black people or the ones who are educated or the ones who you 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 bring out to show that you are anti-racist. It's about every single black body, regardless of where they come from and regardless of how they got here. Thank you very much, Diane. We were talking before we started the program about some some differences that of how racism expresses itself here. And as someone that has been living here for 16 years and comes from the U.S., do you think you can more or less say what is the difference of how racism expresses here in comparison with the U.S.? Can you make a sort of comparison? I mean, I think, you know, the U.S. is, uh, you know, the U.S. is very much dealing sort of with the, the repercussions of slavery. It's very centered around that. Um, and, you know, the level of violence, like a visible violence is so much higher. Um, we don't have things like in the, United, in the United States, you don't put a photo on your CV when you apply for a job. But if you have a black sounding name, it's very often that, you know, there's records of this and there's research of this about how if you have a black sounding name, the likelihood of you getting a job is very is much much lower. The fact that there's a there's another there's another piece of research that I just read about um, in uh, and I, th I think it's in the book uh, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation where they talk about that it's easier for a white man who has committed a crime to get a job. It's easier for a white man who has a criminal record to get a job than a black man who doesn't have a criminal record, right? Um, and so in Europe, in at least in Germany, that it's it's you know, the thing's so much more complicated because one, nobody talks about structural racism. You know, Germany's very much, we dealt with the Holocaust. We like are sorry. We, d we, we don't see color anymore. We're done. Um, and so it's kind of used as a way to, to just sort of excuse themselves from every other form of racism. Um, there is, uh, you know, there is, there's, I feel like in the, the difference is, is that there, because it's not a part of the, like the regular dialogue that the racism is m far more prevalent in everyday life, in every aspect of life. So it's, you know, it's from everything from just like going to the store and like, and going on the Ubon and, you know, people just trying to live their lives all day. Right. Um, and then there is the like the sort of cognitive dissonance and the gaslighting that happens when anyone here expresses that something racist happened. Yeah. You know, that is an issue in the U.S., but it's significant. Like if you say to someone this thing happened, it's more likely in the U.S. that someone will say like, oh, yeah, that is racist. Where in Germany, if you say that and it's like, oh, no, that, that had to be about something else. It immediately had to be about something else. Um, and then we have um, as people who are working here, we have no legs to stand on because there are no statistics 
the German government um, is so afraid to collect statistics on race. You know, we even have right now Seehofer is canceling, canceled the, the racial profiling research into the police force. Um, despite the fact that we know it's true and we know it's happening and black organizations and like POC organizations, you know, have been collecting the data on, on their own. Um, you know, it's this, there's this dissonance of like, just like pretending, you know, that it's not a real thing. You know, this idea now with the Grundgesetz too, like, let's get rid of the word Rasa from the Grundgesetz and it's all the alternatives that they're coming up with. You know, no one, no one's really paying too much attention to the fact that, Seehofer also added to the terrorist crime statistics, Deutschfeindlichkeit. So like, uh, I don't know how to say that in English. Uh, Deutschfeindlichkeit is, uh, it's like German, it's like to be against German people, right? And so it's been written into, like, they're also going to look into that. So so then it's this thing where it's like, okay, if we change Rasse, if we change race to ethnische Herkunft, or we change race to like, like racial perception, then does that mean they're basically it's opening a door for reverse racism to exist? So, you know, with the Deutschfeindlichkeit, can I end up in like terrorist statistics because I called someone Bio-Deutsch? You know, despite the fact that as a black person, I actually don't have any power. I don't have any power. The structure gives me zero power. So these new rules are essential. These new rules or potential rule changes are opening the door for people to legitimize reverse racism. And you know, when someone would say reverse racism in the U.S., it's, you know, I would feel like at least like at least in my not even only in my circles, but in most places, people are kind of just like, uh, what are you talking about? There is like that doesn't white people have power. It's a power dynamic issue. Mm. And here it's, you know, like, oh, you're being racist against German people. And I was like, that's not how that functions. The person committing racism has to be the person who benefits from the power structure. So the, the issue that I find, especially from the American context, is that when, when I talk to Amer- activists working in the U.S., is that when I tell them what's going on here, they're like, oh, you're 100 years behind. You know, we can't even, we can't even get the government and to really talk about it on a structural level. We're, we're still being asked the question in the media and by politicians, uh, have you experienced racism? I'm like, that's not the question that needs to be asked. The question needs to be asked is like, how have you, how, what are the structures that have made you? experience racism and how do we fix those structures and nobody wants to ask that question because then it basically reveals that the whole system is wrong and bad and needs to be completely reformed or even thrown out and like completely radically rethought and there's a huge fear of that so it's you know and so that and that happens when like whether you're talking to people and actual people in power or where you're talking to your white german friends um there's a complete lack of understanding of it. And, you know, it's just like so much of the history of black people here is just completely just gone. It's just been erased. And, and so this makes it, you know, it's, you know, it's like you're trying to have a conversation with someone and they don't, they don't see like 95% of the picture and they have their one little piece and they're like, this piece is great. It looks fantastic. And you're like, no, actually there's like all this other fucked up shit happening in the rest of it. Um, so we're kind of like having the way that we're having to fight this, I find it makes it, you know, despite the fact that, okay, like conditions in the U.S. like look so bad or whatever, but like conditions are bad here also for black people. You know, okay, we're not getting killed as much in the street, but you can still die. You can still die, you know, 
I, I don't have to worry so much about a random gun person on the gun, gunman trying to kill me, but I do have to watch out if the police stop me or if I come into contact with security in any place. You can't even, you're not even safe in a hospital. Yeah. So this is the thing is that it's like, it's literally everywhere and embedded into everything. And then nobody is talking about it as if it's actually a real thing or exists. So, you know, we're in a, we're trying to fight a fight and the people on the other side have all the guns, but they're just, you know, they're, they're just looking at us and like patting us on the head and saying, you know, oh no, 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 it's not so bad here. To close this block, we will play the speech, How Can We Win? made by Kimberly Jones, who is a North American director of feature films, co-author of the book, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight and much more. In her powerful speech, Kimberly Jones makes an analogy with the gay monopoly and breaks down the history of racism in America. So I've, I've been seeing a lot of things talking of the people making commentary. Um, interestingly enough, the ones I've noticed that have been making the commentary are wealthy black people making the commentary about we should not be um, rioting, we should not be looting, we should not be tearing up our own communities. And then there's been an argument of the other side of we should be hitting them in the pocket. We should be focusing on the blackout days where we don't spend money. Um, but, you know, I feel like we should do both. And I feel like I support both. And I'll tell you why I support both. I support both because there, when you have a civil unrest like this, there are three types of people in the streets. There are the protesters, there are the rioters, and there are the looters. The protesters are there because they actually care about what is happening in the community. They want to raise their voices and they are there strictly to protest. You have the rioters who are angry, who are anarchists, who really just want to fuck shit up, and that's what they're going to do regardless. And then you have the looters. And the looters almost exclusively are just there to do that, to loot. Now, people are like, well, what did you gain? Well, what did you get from looting? I think that as long as we're focusing on the what, we're not focusing on the why. And that's my issue with that. As long as we're focusing on what they're doing, we're not focusing on why they're doing. And some people are like, well, those aren't people who are legitimately angry about what's happening. Those are people who just want to get stuff. Okay, well then, Let's go with that. Let's say that's what it is. Let's ask ourselves why in this country in 2020, the financial gap between poor blacks and the rest of the world is at such a distance that people feel like their only hope and only opportunity to get some of the things that we flaunt and flash in front of them all the time is to walk through a broken glass window and get it. That they are so hopeless that getting that necklace, getting that TV, getting that change, getting that bed, getting that phone, whatever it is that they're going to get is that in in that moment when the riots happen and if they present an opportunity of looting, that's their only opportunity to get it. We need to be questioning that why. Why are people that poor? Why are people that broke? Why are people that that food insecure, that clothing insecure, that they feel like their only shot, that they are shooting their shot by walking through a broken glass window to get what they need. And then people want to talk about, well, there's plenty of people who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and got it on their own. 
Why can't they do that? Let me explain to you something about economics in America. And I'm so glad that as a child, I got an opportunity to spend time at PUSH where they taught me this, is that we must never forget that economics was the reason that black people were brought to this country. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Do you understand that? That's what we came to do. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Now, if I right now, if I right now decided that I wanted to play Monopoly with you, and for 400 rounds of playing Monopoly, I didn't allow you to have any money, I didn't allow you to have anything on the board, I didn't allow for you to have anything, and then we played another 50 rounds of Monopoly, and everything that you gained and you earned while you were playing that round of Monopoly was taken from you. That was Tulsa, that was Rosewood. There are those are places where we built black economic wealth, where we were self-sufficient, where we owned our stores, where we owned our property, and they burned them to the ground. So that's 450 years. So for 400 rounds of Monopoly, you don't get to play at all. Not only do you not get to play, you have to play on the behalf of the person that you're playing against. You have to play and make money and earn wealth for them, and then you have to turn it over to them. So then for 50 years, you finally get a little bit and you're allowed to play. And every time that they don't like the way that you're playing or that you're catching up or that you're doing something to be self-sufficient, they burn your game. They burn your cards. They burn your Monopoly money. And then finally at the release and the onset of that, they allow you to play and they say, okay, now you catch up. Now at this point, the only way you're going to catch up in the game is if the person shares the wealth, correct? But what if every time you share the wealth, then there's psychological warfare against you to say, oh, you're an equal opportunity higher. So if I played 400 rounds of Monopoly with you and I had to play and give you every dime that I made, and then for 50 years, every time that I played, I, if you didn't like what I did, you got to burn it like they did in Tulsa and like they did in Rosewood. How can you win? How can you win? You can't win. The game is fixed. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. There is, Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have, that if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. And if the social contract is broken, why the fuck do I give a shit about burning the fucking football hall of fame, about burning a fucking target? You broke the contract when you killed us in the streets and didn't give a fuck. You broke the contract when for 400 years we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contract when we built our wealth again on our own by our bootstraps in Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us when we built it in Rosewood and you came in and you slaughtered us. You broke the contract, so fuck your target. Fuck your Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. That was the most powerful
speech I have had since the beginning of the Bla- George Floyd Black Lives Matter, she has summed up everything. Mm-hmm. And we are not looking for revenge. We have never looked for revenge. And the anger and the power in Kimberly is amazing. This is just amazing. And now to wrap up on, on, on the part of Diana, we know you're preparing to go to the U.S. What are you anticipating? What is the situation? It is not good. It is really, really, it's just absolutely horrible. Um, there, I'm going to Florida. They don't believe in science. Um, you know, there is definitely, there's a giant discrepancy of, there's a big, massive difference in, in terms of who is suffering under the pandemic. Um, you know, everyone's talking about in Germany about like how this first wave is probably over and it's the U S the first wave isn't even close to being done. Um, and you know, the fact, you know, there's all these other issues too, where it's like, we're no longer referring to grocery store workers and nurses as, uh, essential workers. They're talking about reopening schools. They had, oh, this is the best part. So when they were talking about reopening the schools, the school boards that were having the conversations about it, were doing it on zoom. They wouldn't meet in a room together to discuss reopening the schools, but then they decided to reopen the schools, but they won't even meet together. So, you know, and we know like who are the people who work in schools, you know, like, you know, these are not rich people, you know, then we have like janitors and like, you know, lunch ladies and all the other people who have to go to work in the schools who are going to be predominantly black or POC. And there's this, this complete lack of care for humanity um, and the people who are suffering the most, the, you know, we already know that the medical field is, you know, very biased against, uh, black people anyway. Um, and COVID has proven to exacerbate that and make that even exponentially worse. And, um, you know, for me, it's just kind of the way that I'm looking at it is I'm just kind of like, I'm going into, I'm, I'm flying into the eye of the storm and I don't think you know, between, between COVID, between, you know, the, the upcoming election that I, I'm not confident that, that the election will happen. Um, and so I'm, I'm anti- my personal anticipation is that there will be another wave. There'll be a giant wave of hopefully of people standing up. Um, but the sort of, dis- the, the, you know, the, you know, I think Kimberly said it so well, like the, all these things have just been dismantled to the point the social contract has been completely broken and it's been broken Um, in every way and every person who is going to suffer the most from this are definitely going to be, it's all, it's all going to be like black and POC people, immigrants, um, any, any refugees who are still in the U S who haven't been booted. Um, there was also a crazy report that, uh, that the, that, um, the immigration police were knowingly, uh, deporting people who had COVID to other countries. So, Immigration is actually responsible for the spread. Im- like immigration in the United States, ICE is actually responsible for the spread of COVID into parts of the global South. And, you know, but no one's talking about it. Everyone's worried about what Trump is going to tweet or say next. And, you know, people are protesting still in the streets every day and uh, the news has gotten kind of bored with it. So it's not coming out in the, the mainstream media and, but I think it's just going to, I don't think it's going to stop. It's going to keep continuing. And, you know, either, I don't know, there's this, I don't, I don't have a good feeling about any of it. Um, I'm going there to be with my family and I'm going to continue doing the work online 
um, that I can do to support the movement here and to maybe support people in the U.S. as well. But the outlook is not good. It's a very, it's a very, very dangerous time. And it's, it's, you know, this is sort of the result of like the dismantling of the social fabric over the course of what, 50s, like since basically since the 60s, the dismantling of the social fabric to like support humans, to support people, um, you know, the rampant capitalism that America just, you know, the, it's called capitalism and, and it's continually called capitalism despite the fact that it's basically socialism for capitalists. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know. I think it's, I don't know. I don't know if it's a method of uh, weakening the majority of people in order to try to just like maintain the status. Um, but if anything with these Black Lives Matter protests that have been happening across the entire United States, you know, there is... You know, I think that for me, that's a that's a big symbol of the fact that like there is it doesn't really matter what's happening. There is there's there's a line that cannot be crossed. And when that line is crossed, the people will rise up. And so I'm hoping that this will bolster and push people into continually rising. And they're, they're pro like I'm there's literally protests in every state in the U.S. in most major cities, even in non-major cities. It was like there was some tiny town where there was one girl protesting by herself. People, you know, people are it's that important for people to be on the streets right now and to challenge the status quo. And it's continually happening. And, you know, think about it. It's like May, May 25th. And, you know, we're almost in August and there's still protests every day. And, you know, if November doesn't come around, if November doesn't happen, if they try to push the election, I think the whole country will burn. Yeah. Thank you very much. We, 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 we wish you the best there. Thank you. And please keep in touch. Absolutely. Yes, Thank you so yes, much. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Have a nice trip to the U.S. Diana and send us messages. <laughs> Yeah, you will continually hear from me. <laughs> I'll be in my two weeks of quarantine completely bored. So like, it's like, it's like, do you guys need more research? <laughs> what do you need that I can do on the internet? <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, 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 we wish Perfect. you yeah. Thank you. You are listening to IBS. Yes, right? IBS. Hello again, we are back and you are listening to EVS Radio, the Migrant Women Experience. Today our show is called Black Lives Matter in the Mediterranean Sea 2. In European territory, and I quote the alarm phone. Over the past six months, January to June 2020, the Central Mediterranean Sea continues to be a zone of violence, human rights abuses, disappearances, and deaths, as well as a stage of struggles for freedom of movement, both by people fleeing Libya and by the civil fleet. End of quote. The alarm phone is a self-organized network of activists and civil society actors in Europe and North Africa that created a hotline for refugees in distress in the Mediterranean Sea. It is very important to say that the alarm phone is an alarm number to support rescue operations, 
but it is not a rescue number. In 2020, so far, the alarm phone has supported 77 boats in distress in the central Mediterranean Sea that were carrying about 4,500 people. This does not include dozens of boats that called the organizations but were unable to establish sufficient contact to retrieve crucial information such as the GPS positions. Only in 2020, the project Missing Migrants recorded 384 deaths in the central Mediterranean Sea. 108 people died only last month in June. And if this is not shocking enough, the count surpasses 35,000 lives lost during migration since 2014. Also, according to the Missing Migrants Project, which tracks incidents involving migrants, including refugees and asylum seekers, who have died or gone missing in the process of migration towards an international destination. We will be soon speaking with the activist Hela Kanakan. Hela has, has been active in civil society and volunteered in several Tunisian organizations since the 2015 World Social Forum in Tunis. In 2020, she has been awarded this year's Pro Azul Foundation Human Rights Prize along with the two German activists Marion Bayer and Hagen Kopp, all of them from Watch the Mad Alarm Phone. Congratulations, Hela, and thank you for your great work. As Hila is in Tunis and we are in Berlin, we agreed to send her our questions and she answered them through audio messages. The title of the latest Alarm Phone newsletter is Also in Central Mediterranean Sea, Black, Love, Black Lives Matter. We were just talking with Diana Arce from the Black Lives Matter and speaking about the killings in the U.S. and the deaths in the Mediterranean. When Alarm Phone says... Also, in the Central Mediterranean Sea, Black Lives Matter, we would like to know with you, Hela, and here is our first question, do you think people are interested in protesting against the European border regime that leaves thousands to die in the Mediterranean Sea? Why is it so difficult for people to act against such state brutality and racism? So for now and over the past five years, we have more than 15,000 uh, people who have died in the central Mediterranean Sea. These people are generally from Africa, uh, whether Sub-Saharan Africa or North Africa, but also from South Asia. Uh, these deaths uh, are a direct result of uh, the European uh, policies and uh, the borders regime. So I think uh, the reason um, why people in Europe, I would say, are not protesting, or any or elsewhere, are not protesting against the the, the borders uh, brutality and the violence which is going on between borders, is mainly because it is invisible. Uh, I think uh, first of all, it is very hard to document what is going on. Uh, it is very hard to have a camera in the Mediterranean and uh, post or publish a video on on social media uh, 
but uh, despite so despite the effort of many families and act families and activists uh, to speak up about this and to denounce uh, the violence which is which is going on but uh, unfortunately the voices are rarely or not enough heard so i also think that it's not directly touching or directly impacting people's lives it is far it is not uh it is not people who are there it is other people who are coming from another side and i think also what carola carola raquette have said uh, is that european citizens don't know about uh, frontex agency and uh, don't know what they do don't know what uh, don't know their work but also they don't know how much the european union is uh, but i also think that People don't know how much the European Union is engaged in uh, paying southern uh, countries to stop uh, to stop migration, which uh, creates more dangerous routes and uh, more uh, more deaths uh, in the Mediterranean. So uh, the. I would say that these are the main the main reasons and main uh, why people are not acting against this violence which is going on uh, since years now. But unfortunately, we haven't seen uh, we haven't seen uh, act any kind of I don't know how to say this. Uh, so any kind of uh, protests except for small protests, protests which are usually done by the same people, uh, by activists, as I said it before, by activists and family. Hela, on our first program, we spoke about how the pandemic of the COVID-19 affected the lives of migrants already in Germany. But still in the lagers, trapped in the institutional racism that controls the daily lives of asylum seekers in Germany. You documented and reported about how the COVID-19 became an excuse to normalize the lack of assistance in the central Mediterranean. Can you tell us how it happened? So it all started on the 8th of April when Italy have declared its ports as unsafe. And, uh, and the day after, Malta also declared that uh, their ports are unsafe unsafe both of them because and due to the pandemic duty to COVID-19 um, so these two declarations have uh, have created a huge rescue gap uh, which was uh, already existing uh, but this rescue gap was uh, so emphasized so the Maltese government uh, has hired several private fishing vessels um, with uh, to not, not so not only for illegal pushback, uh, but uh, but also that Malta conceals its role in human rights violations, uh, seemingly allowing the government to deny any kind of responsibility. And uh, so these uh, private fishing vessels 
uh, have also brought uh, 62 people who are in distress uh, to the Captain Morgan vessel Europe 2 and uh, were kept, the people were kept in an offshore detention. So on the 7th of May, uh, the Dar el Salem, which, which is one of the private fishing vessels which was hired by the Maltese government, uh, was ordered again to conduct an operation and took on board 78 people uh, and also in this case the people were detained off Malta's shore on a Captain Morgan uh, vessel and in mid-May uh, the tremor was ordered by the RCC Malta to take about 50 people on board. They had been rescued uh, south of Lampedusa and Malta has requested Lampedusa as port of disembarkation but eventually also uh, this group was brought to a Captain Morgan vessel outside Malta's territorial waters on the 23rd of May. So uh, this is what Malta have been doing. Italy also um, have created and installed uh, the ferry boat Mobizaza as a quarantine vessel where those who arrive are kept isolated in quarantine uh, and only after two weeks the rescued were allowed to touch European soil when they were brought to Sicily. Uh, we have witnessed that on the 18th of May at 20 years uh, 28 years old men have jumped from the ship's deck into the water to escape and have uh, drowned. So on the 13th of April, Malta also went even further and kept. So it, they kept 425 people uh, of maritime distress uh, who are in 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 a distress situation on four tourist cruising vessels, uh, which were outside the Maltese territorial waters. So the people uh, were prevented from applying for asylum in Europe. So despite the what is going on with the pandemic and uh, the COVID-19 uh, crisis, uh, Europe it will always be safer than Libya, where people are uh, and people are trying to escape torture, war, but also rape, uh, rape in, in Libya. And people who were reaching Alarfon were always saying that Libya is worse than the coronavirus. We also saw that you are denouncing the new air surveillance aerial collaboration between the EU and Libya in order to facilitate mass interceptions of migrants. Can you explain how this joint venture between the EU and Libya is happening in practice, especially when we know that Libya finds itself in a catastrophic situation, a country in conflict with, collapsing, with a collapsing health system? We read in your report that migrants say that Libya is worse than the coronavirus. So concerning uh, the European Union-Libyan cooperation in intercepting migrants and people on the move in the central, Med the central Mediterranean, I think uh, it is very important to first mention that the externalization of European borders has been going on since the 90s 
and uh, by financing and uh, like let's say helping which is not really helping but uh, helping uh, southern mediterranean countries uh, with uh, with whether uh, vessels or air assets or any other kind of materi material which could uh, contribute in intercepting migrants. So now I will concentrate on the uh, cooperation between the European Union and Libya in um, in so in the air surveillance and so how it goes so that you nav format and Frontex planes they spot migrant boats in distress and and so after that they only inform the Libyan authorities, the so-called co Libyan coast guards, to uh, to prevent other ships from from doing the rescue and take these people to a safe port. And so also, uh, so the MRCC of Italy and Malta failed to take over the coordination of SAR operations. But and uh, instead of that, they just um, they just wait uh, for GRCC Tripoli to take over. Even uh, to take over, even they they are unable to rescue them uh, adequ adequately, and. Uh, so yeah, this has two results. Uh, first of all, it's a delay in rescue operations, and second of all, the return of people who have, or who have been trying to flee Libya, uh, Libya, which is a war zone and where human rights violations are systematic there. So, um, so what happens is that the European authorities. Uh, they monitor the Mediterranean Sea from the air and is instruct uh, their Libyan allies uh, to capture these boats and force them and to, and take them back uh, to Libya. So, for example, in Easter, in the Easter weekend in 2020, uh, we have uh, been we witnessed a secret pushback uh, from from the leave from the Maltese uh, SAR zone and it was coordinated by RCC Malta so Malta was uh, informed by this distress case for days but uh, they sent a helicopter uh, so to uh, to facilitate the interception and so afterwards um, uh, so the people who are in distress uh, were left to slowly die while uh, cargo ships passed by and European air assets uh, were there seeing them, seeing uh, the people who were for days in in the sea. Uh, there were some survivors who have uh, testified that uh, the heli helicopter was was uh, showing uh, and uh, red lights at them, and was uh, turning in circles around the boat several times. Uh, so and just when when the day is over, uh, a Libyan fishing boat emerged, coming from Valletta, and took them uh, on board and forced them to to go back 
to Libya. Uh, so that day, five bodies were recovered and uh, seven other people are presumed dead. And this all happened while the European authorities and the air assets of European authorities uh, were watching, were there. We would also like to know with you if women uh, call the alarm phone, if there is any data available of how many women get in touch with you. Can you tell us about that? Concerning if we have calls or re receive calls uh, by women, we rarely do, I would say. Uh, women are usually... Uh, portrayed as a number which is given by the person who is holding the phone and this person who is holding the phone is uh, usually a man uh, so uh, yet we in general whenever uh, communication is very difficult with the boat whenever uh, there is a lot of stress in the boat and when communication becomes impossible with the person who is holding the phone, we usually ask uh, for, uh, for a woman to speak with, a woman who is on board to speak with. Uh, so usually the women, they speak very clearly. They try, they are calm, but also they try to calm down the people who are on board. Uh, they are good listeners, they listen carefully, and also they understand, uh, they understand us very well. Uh, they are confident and she, they usually try to explain the situation very well, uh, saying if there are sick people, uh, trying to tell us their GPS coordinates in a correct way, and uh, telling us how is the general situation on board is, if there is enough fuel or not, if, um, and so this is how it is usually with women. So whenever there is a chaotic situation, uh, we always try to, to speak to a woman because they usually know, uh, from our experience, they know, uh, they know how to communicate um, even if at the beginning uh, we never, I have never experienced experienced the speaking to a woman at uh, a first call, unfortunately. Thank you for having taken the time to speak to us, and congratulations again for the Human Rights Prize. Now we will listen to a track by Aziza Brahim. She is a Sah Sahrawi singer who was born in a refugee camp in the Tindauf region of Algeria. She's a voice to recall in the Sahara Revolutionary Movement.
ترعرعت في الدنيا وانا لاجي من يوم ترعرعت في الدنيا وانا لاجي
And we are now at the end of our show. Thank you, Diana Arcee and Hila Kanakan for sharing your knowledge and opinions with us and our audience. Thank you, companions Jennifer and Lavenda. We are broadcasting from the We Are Born Free Empowerment Radio. It is on the 88.4 in Berlin and 90.7 in Potsdam. You can listen to We Are Born Free Empowerment Radio every Friday and Saturday from 1 to 4 p.m. and on Sundays from 1 to 5 p.m. Make sure to visit our website iwspace.de and subscribe to our newsletter and podcasts. Check also the links and materials connected to the topic of this program. A complete transcript and translated version to German will be available soon in our website. IVS Radio, the Migrant Women Experience, is supported by Open Society Foundations. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much, everyone. And we look forward to interacting more with you in this particular radio station, IVS Radio. You've been listening to EBS Radio. We are broadcasting from We Are Born Free, Powerman Radio in Berlin. EBS Radio is a podcast series on the migrant women experience brought to you by EBS, the international women's space. We are a feminist, anti-racist group of migrant women, refugee women, and women without this experience. EBS Radio is a continuation of our work documenting the lives and stories of refugee and migrant women living in Germany. Visit our website, iwspace.de, to find out more about our work and subscribe to our newsletter. A complete transcript and a German translation of today's episode will also be available there soon.